It's October 16th, 2011, and this is The Candid Frame. The pursuit of a photographic life is often about the lives we imagine we could live and the photographs that we could make. It's also about the places we could go and the people we might meet. And for a few photographers, it's about the lives that they might change. Ryan Libre is one such photographer who through his photographic work in Southeast Asia is hoping to educate and inform as well as reveal the beauty of a place and its people. And remarkably, he is offering an opportunity for another photographer to live out just such a life for himself or herself, as you will soon hear. If you've been waiting for an excuse to do something challenging and remarkable, this just might be the opportunity you've been waiting for. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Ryan Niebre. Well, Ryan, welcome to the Candid Frame. Uh, I, every once in a while, I get to do some very long-distance interviews, and uh, this is this is one of them. So it's always exciting to to add a sort of a nice international flavor to the show. So so welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you. Your work primarily has focused in Southeast Asia, and I'm I want to ask you, when did an interest in that part of the world start? happening for you and did it happen before or after you, you developed an interest for photography oh well i guess i've been basically living here for about 10 years now um and my photography you can say it started before in university i i was doing photography quite seriously um did a few exhibitions in university and things but yeah, it was really here that I kind of took off, you know, and brought it to the next level and, you know, started doing it full time or professionally. Um, yeah, but it, it's really been, uh, you know, it kind of started out as like a six month uh, trip in Asia. And here I am 10 years later, I, I've barely left. And what was it visually that really appealed to you um, as opposed to any other part of the world that you had lived in or, or had visited before? Well, I don't know if it was so much visually. I, I had traveled to a lot of um, countries that I found very visually stimulating, but at the same time, they, they never really felt quite like home to me or like something I was really interested in pursuing really in depth, you know? But when I came to, to Asia, and particularly Southeast Asia, I just, I felt something that just kind of said, like, you should stay here and explore a lot more and, and keep digging deeper and I still feel the same 10 years later. There's still lots more to explore and more to understand and more to document. Well, you identify yourself as a documentary photographer. And how did that develop? Because for a lot of people, when they travel to Southeast Asia, I think they oftentimes think of travel photography before they think of documentary or, or photojournalism, for that matter. So how did sort of your sensibility as a photographer in terms of the role that the camera could play start evolving or, or changing? Well, I guess you could say when I came, I was 
I was more of a travel photographer. And then I actually, for a few years, I considered myself a photojournalist because really mostly what I'm documenting is, well, like take, for example, the Kachin Independence Army is something that's, it's kind of like a newspaper story in a way. And I thought of myself as a photojournalist, but then when I really kind of looked inside closely, inside the world of photojournalism and, and talked with a lot of photojournalists and then talked with people and galleries that, that considered themselves like a documentary photography, I just found I, I just flowed a lot better in, in the places that considered themselves documentary uh, as opposed to photojournalism. So I kind of made the switch of, of calling myself a, from a photojournalist to a documentary photographer a few years ago. And how would you describe the difference for people who may not be too familiar mm. with the nomenclature in terms of your own perspective? How, what makes them different? Well, photojournalism, I think, is generally tied to a, a news story. And that's often something that the news is, and the mass media is already kind of has an interest in and is looking to buy images of. And documentary photography to me is more about, I see photojournalism as part of documentary photography, but, but documentary photography can be much broader and it can it explore a lot of topics that uh, mass media would never really be interested in uh, showing, uh, especially in their depths, you know, if it's like a full exhibition or a photo essay or something, you know, the mass media is only ever going to pick up maybe one small image or something like that. Well, for, for me, it, there, there's a sense of depth and uh, pers personal uh, touch to things. You know, often the photo, or really anyone that calls himself a journalist is supposed to be really objective about things. And that has its benefits, and it also, I think, has some downfalls. And I think by being a documentary photographer, you don't necessarily have to limit yourself to being an objective journalist. That's kind of a few points wrapped in one, but yeah. maybe it gets the idea. Well, your work with the Kachin, I think, is one of the ones that gives provides an example of of the difference there, because the the plight of the Kachin is not one that necessarily finds itself into the newspapers, uh, because it isn't a really driving news story for most of the world. So, the, it really kind of fits into how you're defining documentary. But why don't you briefly explain? who the Kachin are, what part of the world they exist in, and the issues they face, and, uh, and how you chose to, to document that. So the Kachin, they are an, an ethnic group, and they live in the Himalaya. And they're really quite closely related to like the Tibetan and the Bhutanese. And the, the, the Kachin I'm documenting, they mostly live in the northern part of Burma, in the high altitudes in the Himalaya. And they're an ethnic group of about a million to two million people. And I first got interested in them because um, I live uh, next door to uh, a very nice, interesting, uh, like adobe house building and organic farming center. And they got some students from, from Burma one day. And they told me they were Burmese students. So I went up and I introduced myself to one and I said, hello, you must be one of the, the Burmese students. But it was a, the woman looked at me in the eye and replied, like, I'm not Burmese, I'm, I'm Kachin. And I had never heard of that, you know, and I have a degree in peace studies. I read a few newspapers a day, but 
He'd never heard of the Kachin, so I was very interested. And you know, when I went around and looked for information about them, there was just nothing out there in terms of like you know visually or or written things. So I was just really compelled to go there and and see you know who what are the Kachin and how do they live and what are the issues. I mean, what I found out is they they've been really repressed in just about every way you can imagine, you know, culturally, economically, religiously, uh, politically, for uh, about 60 years now by, by the Burmese government. And really, no one's telling their story, you know, and part of that is it's quite difficult to, to get in there, that the Burmese and, and the Chinese both make it quite difficult to enter. But they're really beautiful people, you know, and I really enjoy my time with them. And, you know, I, I consider I consider them my friends as well, um, which is something I don't know if a photojournalist can can quite say. But since I don't quite consider myself one, I can say they're my friends. They're wonderful people. And yeah. I love to help tell their story. Well, there are a lot of ethnic groups uh, in in that region and um, all of whom are are hoping for independence or at least for for greater freedoms that they than they are enjoying uh, enjoying now um largely as a result of the politics in 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 burma so with all those challenges in terms of ethnic tensions and like you mentioned uh accessibility because of mm. the policies of china and burma how do you not only gain access but gain the trust of people who are unfamiliar with you know outsiders coming in and wanting to interview them and photograph them. So I think people are, are really uh, intuitive when it comes to people's, you know, motivations and things. And, you know, I, I come in there and I'm really personally interested to, to know about the Kachin and about their lives personally. And, you know, I, I really want to share that with people as well and hopefully find some way to help them in the process. And, you know, I think most people have sensed that and they're really opened a lot of doors to me that, you know, and often even risked uh, their personal, their safety and things to, to tell me things or to show me places or bring me to places that is heavily guarded by the Burmese government and things. So, you know, it's really a project that I couldn't do alone. I, I really need a lot of help from them. And, and one more thing about it is, you know, the first time I went, they, they were very nice and, and they talked to me quite a lot. But then it, I stayed for one month, which is much longer than, you know, your standard uh, news photos that you would see. They're mostly taken in, you know, can be a few hours or maybe a few days. But then I went back another month. Then I went back for two months. Then I went back for again for two months. You know, and I keep going back, and the more I go back and the more time I spend with them, the more they open up. And I think that's really one of the keys to, to good photography is just the time spent to, to develop things, to make relationships and get depth that it really just doesn't happen in a, in a few days. Yeah. Well, it used to be the case where if, um, a photographer might be able to spend that kind of time because he had the support of a of a magazine like Life magazine or or yeah. National Geographic, and that's that's a rarity now. So, um, how, so how do you manage to, you know, to be able to support the work not only financially but also create opportunities for people to actually see it and learn the story? On the financial side of things, there's there's two aspects. I mean. 
certainly the images that have been bought by the mass media have not come close to even covering the costs of, of traveling there. Um, so I've been very fortunate to get a few grants. Um, one of them is from the, the Pulitzer Center, and they, they gave me money for my first trip there and everything, and that really helped a lot. And after that, I've gotten two or three other small grants. With, without those things, it, it would be very, very difficult <laughs> to continue the project. And another thing is, I mean, really, I've, I've chosen, I think, a lifestyle that doesn't need a lot of regular income all the time by a lot of personal choices. I, I mean, I built my own house and I ride my bicycle everywhere I can, things like that, that allow me a lot more, I think, uh, creative uh, freedoms than would be the case if I was living, you know, in, in a Western country and paying a mortgage and, and had kids and things. Mm -hmm. You know, so th those are, I, I really feel sympathetic to uh, photographers that, that do have that mortgage and, and things that don't, don't have the freedoms. Um, it's very difficult now, you know? I mean, even for me, living in a, a relatively cheap part of the world. Um, but, but there are a lot of grants available, you know? Certainly not as many grants as there are projects deserving of them, but I think if, if you have a really good project and, and you write it up well, you know, and you really try for it, there's a good chance, you know, that people will find some support for, for a project. Yeah. How did you develop your skills as, as a photographer? Um, you, you mentioned that you studied peace studies uh, at the university, but uh, how did you start developing your abilities as a photographer? Not only your technical skills, but having um, a sensibility in terms of what's required to tell a story, particularly uh, in, in the documentary sense. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a long process, you know. I, I mean, I don't really feel like I'm everywhere I want to be in a lot of ways, um, but I'm starting to make make steps towards towards there. You know, it's all been really self learning, but kind of as you mentioned, I kind of started out as like you know a travel photographer. I, I documented the places I went, and that taught me a fair amount. But it wasn't really until I moved to Japan. And uh, I got a job in a government school there, and it was a one-year contract. And I found out after about three months that that really wasn't what I wanted to be doing. So I thought, well, what do I want to do? So I thought, well, it would be great if I could do photography full-time. And I saved up my money and uh, got a decent camera. And after that, I quit. And I just spent one year um, to document a, a national park in Japan and spend a whole year on one topic, you know, I, I really learned so much about uh, individual images, um, but also how to put them together and make a story and things. And, you know, at the end of that, uh, I had a body of work that uh, I was able to exhibit at the Fujifilm Salon mm -hmm. uh, in Japan. So that's really where I got my foot in the door, you know, but it's, it's really, I think, as you know, a lifelong learning process. And there's still a lot of things that, uh, you know, a few hard skills, but mostly a lot of soft skills and storytelling skills that I think I'll be learning 20, 30, 40 years from now. Well, that period between leaving that job and getting an exhibit doesn't seem to have been as long as some people would suspect. So how did that opportunity 
and others present itself to exhibit or 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 sell your work yeah well it was uh it was about one maybe one and a half years and it was you know 18 hour days uh six seven days a week you know taking the photos and then researching and then putting them together and then trying to get them out there and yeah a good solid you know 16 18 hour days i don't know if there's really a shortcut fortunately i I had saved up enough money and cost of living in Hokkaido in northern Japan is actually quite reasonable. So I was able to, to just really focus on that for one year without other, uh, other things taking too much of my time. Yeah. You photograph a lot of cultural festivals, which are just amazing opportunities for, for photographs. And since you travel throughout Southeast Asia, there, there are a lot of opportunities to to document and photograph some amazing things. Tell us about what you need to do even before you arrive at a destination in order to ensure that you're, you're ready to be able to make the photographs. What kind of research and preparation is involved? Well, for me, I, I kind of, I don't do a lot of like uh, book research or something, but what I'll do is show up to a place at least a few days, if not a few weeks before a festival starts and get a feel for the city and start talking to some people and you know write down a few notes of people's names and and what event might happen at what time and where and and just really get get the people who's going to be in the festival or in the town to to know you and then when the festival starts you know you're not you're not an outsider that's just there kind of pushing yourself you know pushing your way around to get a few photos but they're, they're someone that you, you, they already know you and they, they know you're there for good reasons and it opens up so many doors um, that, you know, people will, will tell you that there's going to be some, you know, small kind of secret side event or something like that or they'll just allow you into places that it wouldn't be possible if you just showed up the day the event started or, or like most um, you know, people who work in the mass media, they'll show up in the middle of the festival and just stay one or two days and then leave. You know, it's it's very different, the relationships you build. And yeah, I think it's mostly just, just showing up early and, and again, putting in, you know, putting in the hours. Can you give me an, an example of of something that you had the opportunity to photograph that reflects that idea, that an opportunity that you had that you might not have had otherwise there's a lot but one that comes to mind is um i was at the uh vegetarian Taoist festival in phuket um if you've seen those photos Mm -hmm. and there was about 10 photographers kind of standing you know uh, somewhat together and this uh priest a Taoist priest kind of like uh, pointed at me and started speaking to me in tongues as they they only speak in tongues when they're possessed. And he just, I didn't understand anything he was saying, but he pointed at me and and I followed him. And then he brought me down to the ocean and there was this man that had brought this like huge gold sword down, like right down into the ocean. And he he was cutting his tongue with it as part of their festival. But Mm. so this is, this is a man that I had, uh, spoke with days before the festival had started and you know he 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 pointed only at me and it was quite clear that he wanted me to come and the other photographers are kind of like well why does he want you to come 
Well, it was because I was there, you know, and, and made friends with the guy before the festival started. Wow, that's amazing. In terms of travel, I mean, one of the, I know when I travel, one of the big concerns is just not burdening myself with too much weight and too much gear, particularly mm. because you're largely on your feet. Um, talk about how, uh, how you sort of navigate that, how you sort of balance the need to have enough equipment, but not too much equipment and trying to decide what you're going to have with you when you're documenting these things. Cause some of these things you only have one opportunity to photograph. So how do you sort of, you know, figure, figure that out? And, and what actually do you take when you're out there? Uh, on the photo gear, I think I travel very, very light. You know, I have I have one body and two prime lenses and sometimes a wide-angle zoom. So, you know, you can fit these things in your pocket, really. I mean, part of that, I think, again, it does go a bit back to the time spent somewhere. You know, it's like mostly I'm the photos that you see people of in, in my images, they're people that I've spent mostly if not hours, days with. So I don't need any big lenses, you know, to, to zoom in. You know, I'll just walk right up to them and they're, they're very comfortable with me, you know, in, in very close proximity. So I shoot mostly with a, a 35 millimeter and then like a, a 10 to 20 zoom or something like that. And occasionally I carry um, like an 85 prime um, that I use for for certain situations, but it's mostly those two lenses and one body. Well, that makes a lot of sense because taking a look at your images, there's an immediacy to them that I mm. think that you typically don't see with a lot of other travel photographers who are shooting with longer lenses, creating a sense of distance and separation. Mm. And in, in your photographs, largely because of the lens choice and, and the intimacy that you're able to create with your subject matter, you really create a sense that you're right there in the middle of everything. Oh, that that's good to hear. That's that's certainly where I like to be. So I'm, I'm glad that comes across. You mentioned before, you know, the work that you did in the um, in the landscape with the in the national park that they have in Japan, mm -hmm. and that seems like very different from you know the work that you've been doing um, in Burma and and elsewhere. It's is the landscape still playing a role in in your photographs or 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 how how have you sort of incorporated that into the work yeah it it, it still is you know um that project uh, it's uh taisetsuzan national park it's the largest national park in japan and, and it's not really finished yet even though i've been working on it many many years and I, th I think there's one common theme that runs through pretty much all of my photos, and it's the, the theme of freedom. Um, and sometimes it's not always easy to connect the dots, but like for me, uh, living above the tree line in a national park, you know, there's a tremendous amount of freedom there that you don't find um, really anywhere in a city, really anywhere in the world. You know, you just have to keep yourself warm and, uh, you know, not injured and a few things like that and fed and that's it. You know, everything else you you can do what you want. And also, if you look at the story of like the Kachin Independence Army, of course, that's that's more acutely related to the story of freedom. But really, if you look at most of my images and stories, I, I think there's some element of freedom in there that, that 
draws me to them. Well, one of the things that you've been doing beyond just being a photographer yourself is is being very proactive in terms of creating a, a community. Um, you have the, the, the documentary Arts Asia organization. Why don't you tell us more about the idea behind that and, and what role are you hoping for it to play? Yeah, I'm very excited about it. You know, it's been really, I've been working on it um, for a few years now, but it's mostly been uh, small details and getting everything planned just right. So I think now it's really ready for, you know, a big opening. But something I came across a lot in the stories that I'm working on is that I really wish that there was a local person there that could be doing this instead of me, because I think, you know, they've got the language skills and the, and the history and, you know, the connections and all these amazing things that take me a lot of time and sometimes never come like the language that, that they have already. So I thought, you know, wouldn't it be great if more of these people could be documenting their own stories? And so that's kind of where the, the core philosophy comes from. Mm-hmm. You know, then I just kind of thought, well, there's two things like what also, you know, I'm still, you know, uh, on the path to being, a, you know, a recognized photographer. So I can I can still very, uh, you know, remember or know right now the things that people need to to jump the hoops that it takes to to be a recognized photographer. So I just thought of, you know, a list of what, you know, what do people need? They need training. They need equipment. They need access to to see exhibitions and books. They need, you know, whatever they need. Then I just try to make a program that is going to help them and put it all together and call it uh, Documentary Arts Asia. And so, for example, um, starting very soon, we're going to have an artist in residence program because I know there's a lot of people out there that have some very good skills and a lot of interesting ideas as well, but they don't really have the time to, to make those ideas happen. So by creating uh, an artist in residence that's just for photographers and filmmakers, I hope to uh, choose one person a year and give them three months, give them an apartment, give them food, a bicycle, a phone, whatever they need, and just let them document uh, what they want for three months. And just, you know, programs like that, that I think are going to hopefully bring a lot of photographers in Asia to the next level, whatever that next level might be for them. And also at the same time, uh, document a lot of very important stories that are happening here and people don't really hear about. Part of the uh, submission process for that is to submit a proposal. Can you give us an idea in terms of what you're looking for? You know, you mentioned you'd like to have people who have a certain skill set, but more specifically, what are you hoping that they will do with the time there, and mm. and what kind of work would you like them to to produce while there? I know you're giving them a lot of flexibility in terms of what they choose to do, but you know, I think a lot of people would like to have an idea in terms of what you're looking for or hoping yeah. for. I'm looking for something that's that's pretty specific in the sense that. It's been really well thought out and, and they're choosing this one thing that, that quite interests them. You know, probably the person's going to have a bit of 
uh, experience or background that's going to allow them to to make the most of, of that time if they're coming into something they've they've never done anything similar to it's not you know off the table but it would be nice to if they have uh, a bit of experience or background that's going to let them do the project very well it has to be documentary in nature which you know i'm thinking very broad it could be you know even a topic but really everything can be documentary you know even like fashion if someone wants to document the fashion in asia but not just like what's you know pretty or sexy but you know really like what's going on or you know where is it coming from and things like that it could be really any topic but but documentary in nature I, with, so i think you know they have to have something a question or something that's really driving them to to explore this topic mm. and to share that with people and the person who um who gets this where would they be what what kind of support do they expect uh where would they live what's what's you well, know what's yeah, this is this is our first year, so it's going to be you know a very humble program. Um, but we're you know we can provide a, a simple uh, apartment with you know a bed and electric and Wi-Fi. We're going to give them a phone and some money to use. Um, for sure, a bicycle and, and maybe uh, some uh, a few motorbike rentals during the time, and. Mostly, the rest of the things are going to come from local businesses that I've gone around and, and got local businesses to donate a few meals, a few coffees, a few beers, different things like that. So they'll have a bunch of coupons of, of local uh, restaurants and shops. This is going to be in Chiang Mai, Thailand, by the way. And they can just use these cards and go and get a coffee every day or get an ice cream once a week or... Uh, a Mexican dish once a week, you know, all these things like that. So it's a way to kind of shortcut, you know, getting a lot of money donated and then spending that money is just finding the things directly that people need to to document. Hopefully we'll have some photo prints as well, so some free photo prints per week so they can be printing out what they're shooting. And yeah, it's, it, you know, all that said, it's going to be pretty humble the first year. We don't uh, we cannot provide any transportation to or from Thailand the first year, but we're hoping to in the future. But And we're going to have a big uh, welcome party and going away party, as well as an exhibition of the work that they've produced. And we're going to be putting it as the central part of our first magazine as well. well it sounds like an exciting opportunity, I think, for listeners out there who are interested uh, interest in it. Uh, where can they find out more information and, and find out how to apply? Yeah, if you go to Documentary Arts Asia, I think it would be easiest to just search for that, um, but documentaryartsasia.org. One of the first links is Artist in Residence. So it has all the information there. There's an online submission process. And the deadline is going to be about two weeks from when this show airs. So should give you guys uh, a bit of time to think of something and, and get your proposals in. And yeah, I'm very excited to see what, what the Candid Frame uh, listeners are going to be submitting. Well, what, you're, what you're speaking of in terms of doing this is, is the large part about the importance of building community, um, of creating networks to support bodies of work like, like this. Uh, talk about the communities that you have found yourself there 
or or have been lacking and why you think it's so important to have yeah i've spent um the last 10 years kind of back and forth between southeast asia and japan and it's really a striking difference there uh the resources and communities i find you know when i spend time in japan uh whether it's you know a photo uh even just a normal bookstore or a university or a library or a gallery or something there's there's a tremendous amount of opportunities to look at really uh, amazing world-class photography and there's also a lot of grants and awards and um, all kinds of things out there that if you if you want to find are available but when i come back to southeast asia and i look for those things you know in the bookstores they're getting better but mostly they just have a few very easy to sell photo books which don't necessarily have the best most memorable photos that you know people really need to see to to be learning from and the galleries here in southeast asia there's quite a lot but they're mostly focused on uh, traditional forms of art such as oil painting mm -hmm. and there's very limited uh, exhibition space for for photography and very few galleries that are dedicated just to photography so that's another thing documentary arts asia is going to be doing is is opening a gallery just dedicated to photography and especially to documentary photography so when i yeah when i went back and forth there's just such a striking difference in resources in the communities that are available there for support and at the same time as the people who need the most support are probably the people here in southeast asia that that get the least uh so hopefully uh, I'll be able to, me and, and other people that are going to be helping with Documentary Arts Asia will be able to put a small dent in that and at least be able to support some people to, to tell their stories. In terms of your own personal work, what, have you, what are you hoping to do in the next you know, few years or two uh, in terms of not only the subject matter, but in terms of challenging yourself as, as a photographer? What are your own hopes for your own work? Mm. One thing is I, I'm applying for a government scholarship in Japan. I, I'd like to go back to, it's like a graduate level independent study for one year that I really think I, I need because I, I think I've kind of pushed the limits that I can of just working on my own and not getting really a lot of feedback and things like that. So I'd really like to be in a, in a university setting for a year and have different professors with different styles that can give me critiques and libraries with massive amount of books and and really put a lot of my projects on side on the side for the better part of a year and just really focus on studying and try to bring myself to the next level because mm -hmm. you know i've written like a long list of books that i would love to read related to photography but in the last year or so i've, I've only actually read one because you know, I'm so busy just taking photos that I haven't had enough time as as I'd like to to study it more. So hopefully I can get the scholarship and, and just take a year off to yeah, push myself to the next level and to go around to all the many, many galleries in Tokyo every week and see all the amazing work that's exhibited there. And and then on, on the project side of things, I, I want to get even more um i guess less 
photojournalism and more like a personal, like some projects, maybe even documenting like uh, my own Adobe uh, solar powered organic house and my lifestyle there. Mm-hmm. And just really um, not traveling as much and sticking closer to home, uh, whether that's like a physical place or, you know, uh, an emotional place or whatever. But yeah, documenting things that are a bit more personal for a while and, and see where that takes me. Well, the last question I always ask is I ask photographers to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone. It can be someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be for you and why? I would really recommend uh, Ami Vitali. She's a, a woman National Geographic photographer that really has just such amazing images and really a, a very humble and, and optimistic uh, worldview. And I just really love seeing all of her work and listening to her interviews and and also knowing that, you know, even being um, you know, highly sought after photographer works a lot with National Geographic. She's taking time out of her career to go back to school and study as well. And I think that's that's really uh, admirable. And yeah, I'd really love if anyone doesn't know her work to uh, check that out and, and listen to some interviews as well. Yeah, she's an amazing photographer. So thanks for that, for that suggestion. And, and where can people find out more about you and your own work? Yeah, at ryanlibre.com that's r-y-a-n-l-i-b-r-e dot com well thank you for so much for being on the show and staying up so late to, to talk to me no problem it's a real pleasure thank you Thank you for your continued support of the show. Please remember that my other limited-run podcast, Chasing the Light, is available for download and subscription through the iTunes Store. Check it out and let me know what you think. If you have any comments, please email me at thecandidframe at gmail.com or post a message on the blog at thecandidframe.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and now Google+. The editor for this episode is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. And this is about Ian X. Perello, and this is... The Candid Frame. Check out this show and more great photography podcasts at photocastnetwork.com. Photocastnetwork.com.